I was intrigued by Oswald Rufeisen, not only because of his unusual life, but also because I was not sure how to classify him. His case presented me with a dilemma. Was he a rescuer or a survivor? In the end, I classified him as a survivor and concentrated on the help he received while passing as a non-Jew. After I finished writing about Polish rescuers and Jewish survivors, I made Oswald Rufeisen's story the focus of my next book. Only after I concentrated on writing about him did I become aware that some Jewish survivors I had written about, although in less dramatic ways, had also helped others. Why had I overlooked their acts of altruism? Was my insensitivity to Jews as rescuers based on the assumption that one could not simultaneously be a victim and a rescuer? Did I think that as the main targets of Nazi persecution, Jews would focus only on their own survival? While I was considering these questions, in 1986, representatives of the Organization of Partisans, Underground Fighters, and Ghetto Rebels of Israel asked me to write a factual account of the Bielski Partisan Unit. Those representatives had survived World War II by fighting and hiding in the forests of western Belarusia. They offered to help me find materials, take care of translations, and locate people for interviews in Israel and the United States. Prior to this request, and quite independently, I had been interested in the Bielski partisan group and its charismatic leader, Tuvia Bielski. Both the unit's opposition to the Germans and its protection of Jews piqued my interest and seemed a logical extension of my previous projects. Intrigued by this special connection between fighting and rescue, I embarked on this study. I wanted to begin my research with an interview with Tuvia Bielski, the group's commander. Although I spoke to Tuvia on the phone, my efforts at meeting him were frustrated. Each time I called for an appointment, his wife, Lilka, offered a different reason for not setting up a meeting. The first few refusals had to do with trips to Florida, later with Tuvia's failing health, I persisted and eventually was given a date. But when I arrived at the Bielski home in Brooklyn in May 1987, I was greeted by a distraught Lilka who told me that Tuvia had had a bad night and was not in a position to see me. Because I was leaving for Israel the next day, I was determined to get at least some kind of a personal impression of the man. Politely but firmly, I explained that it had taken me two hours to reach their home, and that I would be very disappointed if I could not see him. I continued by promising that I would be brief. It worked. Soon I was moving into a dining room, dominated by a massive table surrounded by equally massive chairs. The hand-embroidered tablecloths reminded me of some faraway European place. The walls were covered with photographs, and with what seemed like framed diplomas. These wall hangings contributed to the room's crowded feeling. Tuvia appeared in each picture, alone or in the company of others. What looked like diplomas turned out to be expressions of gratitude for his wartime achievements. The entire place had a somber, old-fashioned flavor. My contemplation of the surroundings was interrupted by Tuvia's noiseless appearance. He was closely followed by his wife, who, without actually touching him, gave the impression of holding him up. Towering over us, Erect, yet with an obvious effort, the man I had waited for moved toward me. 
His face was covered by a tentative, sad smile. He knew why I had come, and told me in a feeble voice how glad he was that I wanted to write about him. Trying to sound friendly, not to offend, I explained to Lilka that I had to conduct the interview alone, without observers. Reluctantly, she consented to leave. Before she did, she pointed to one of the framed photos, taken at a recent Waldorf Astoria dinner in honor of her husband's 80th birthday. She explained that this was sponsored by the Bielski partisans. She must have wanted me to say something pleasing. I did. Perhaps accustomed to this ritual, perhaps gratified, Tuvia looked on in silence as a smile played around his mouth. When we sat down for the interview, I told him that he could speak Yiddish or one of the other languages he knew. He settled on Yiddish and began to whisper. I had difficulties hearing...